Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. As I do Spirit in Action, I'm aware of competing desires within me, one being my aspiration to gather examples of world healers widely everywhere which I think I do, and the other, the tendency to share with you the many great workers for the good of the world who are, like me, Quakers. I never want to be parochial in my focus, but some cases are just the perfect nexus of both activism and the Quaker vein of spirit moving the world toward transformation. Peterson Toscano is one such activist, Quaker, and friend, and today he's going to share portions of his newest podcast, Quakers today, dealing with all kinds of issues of interest to all of you listeners, things like spirituality, transgender understandings, reparations from slavery, abusive religion, and deep personal transformation. And, as usual, Peterson Toscano does this kind of in-depth exploration better than anyone else I know. Over to you, Peterson. Thanks, Mark, for handing over the controls today, and thank you for listening to Spirit in Action. Today, I bring you stories about faith and faith communities. You're going to hear from a young man who lost his childhood faith and now is trying to find his way forward. We share an eyewitness report of a revival that recently happened in Kentucky. We'll hear what she saw, heard, and she will reflect on what revival means to her. A transgender person reveals how art and spirituality provide a space for growth. Also, a transgender pastor tells us about the Bible verse that speaks deeply to him. And we consider redemption and reparations. What if you're part of a rich religious tradition with a hidden troubled past? What do you do when you learn about early faith leaders who, instead of being positive forces of transformation in society, played active roles in oppressing others? All these stories are brought to you by Quakers Today, the companion podcast to Friends Journal. Writer Anne E.G. Nightum believes art can open our hearts, and fantasy just might save the world, and is the author of the short story, The Conduits. The first time Maggie saw The Conduits, she was nine years old sitting in meeting for worship, bored by the stillness and the silence as always, and idly counting the flowers printed on her mother's skirt. Vera Penny stood up. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, the old woman said, her thin hand making a gesture as if she were scattering a handful of birdseed. Maggie blinked at the glowing ripple that spread through the air where Vera's fingers traced their arc. She stared as the conduits came into focus. Glowing lines spreading from Vera's hands, face, and powder blue cardigan toward everyone else in the meeting room. Who has seen the wind, Vera went on, neither you nor I. But when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. So, with the divine, we know God is there, not because we see God, but because we see the effects of love moving through the world, like wind. 
Maggie looked down at her own chest and saw the light touching her. She felt an unexpected warmth as she realized that there were more lines, channels between her and her parents sitting beside her, her friend Sora across the room, and Mr. Price, who always asked what book she was reading and really listened to the answer. The harder Maggie looked, the more lines she saw, until there were lines connecting each person with every other person, heart to heart to heart. Then she noticed John Barlow sitting on a bench by himself. He sat in a shadow, none of the threads of light quite reaching him, as if a hole were torn in the web. Maggie's focus sharpened, and she saw not just glowing threads, but streams of light flowing through clear conduits toward John. But just before the light reached the man, something hard and jagged blocked the flow so that he seemed tense with cold in his walled-off hollow where the light couldn't reach. Maggie didn't know John well. He wasn't a friendly man. But seeing that darkness around him, her heart went out to him. In that moment, she saw the metaphor made real and palpable. As a pulse of stronger light surged out from her own heart along the conduit toward the lonely man. The pulse hit the obstruction, flared brighter, and then faded. But its strength had widened the channel just enough that a thinner thread of light could flow through, wavering the last few inches to connect John Barlow at last with the great glowing web all around him. Maggie watched his eyebrows rise in surprise and then his shoulders lowered just a fraction, and the set of his mouth relaxed. After the rise of meeting, Maggie asked her mother what she'd seen. Her mother shook her head, puzzled. When Vera Penny spoke, Maggie insisted. Her mother agreed that she'd found Vera's message helpful, but clearly she had seen no magical glowing threads. So Maggie hoisted up her courage, marched over to Vera Penny, and said, I want to know how to do that, please. How to do what? Make those lines, those tubes of light. I want to be able to make those tubes like you do. Vera smiled and cocked her head at Maggie. Ah, you see them too. Those are the conduits. But I don't make them, you know. That's God. They're always there. But I only see them when you... Maggie made a little gesture of her own, unable to explain. That's magic. I want to be able to do that, Vera nodded. Knowing they're there, that's faith. Feeling them, that's being centered in the divine. To see them takes imagination as well, and perhaps a little magic. And making it so I can see them too? That's God again. I share what I'm given to share, and that's obedience. Maggie frowned. Obedience didn't sound nearly as appealing as magic. But you did do something. Yes, but not to make them. What I did was believe in the love, imagine the love, and center myself in the love. And if you saw the conduits, you can do all that too, which is a blessing. It's hard enough to feel them, and most people never see them at all. You've been given a special gift, Maggie. Practice it, and come back and tell me how it goes. 
That was an excerpt of Anne E. Jean Item's short story, The Conduits. Read the rest of the story in the November 2022 issue of Friends Journal. And you can hear Anne's complete reading of The Conduits by visiting quakerstoday.org. Visit nitemprints.com to learn about Anne E.G. Nitem's block prints and books. Nitem is spelled N-Y-D-A-M. Visit nitemprints.com. You will find more short stories in the fiction issue of Friends Journal at friendsjournal.org. Coming up, photographer Kai Quirk tells us how stories and myths infuse their visual art. Stories have power to reach beyond our brain and into our emotions and our bodies, our souls, our hearts. In that way, they can connect us in deeper ways to each other, to ourselves, to the earth. My name is Kai Quirk. I use they, them, theirs, or I am, theirs pronouns. And I currently live in Ithaca, where I started going to Quaker meeting when I was five days old. My art is an expression of my faith. Some of it is what God is leading me to do, to bring out in the world. And some of it is experiential pieces that bring me closer to the divine and to earth. I'm often led to a particular place to do a photo. Once I'm there, I set my equipment to the side and sit with the space. So the photograph is very much a collaboration between myself and and the earth. And it feels like a co-creation with divine. One of the photos in the project is called Each Twilight. In it, I am reaching around a tree, looking at this opening in the tree where there's light emanating out of it. That was what immediately called to me was this opening. As I was thinking about how I would create the titles for the images, which are each as if they're pulled out of the middle of a story. And it emerged into a myth that became part of the project as a whole. It became clear that these written stories in mythic form were meant to be a part as well. The photos themselves are about gender mixed with spirituality and mythology and nature and storytelling inviting new and nuanced ways of looking at gender. So it feels like Divine is very much pulling, pulling this to be out in the world and to have influence on how folks are, are looking at gender and opening the doors to wider understandings. For me, gender is very connected to being a Quaker. It's a similar kind of looking deep inside for one's own inner truth and not necessarily following what society says, oh, this is the right way to do things. You can learn more about Kai Quirk at their website, kaiquirk.com. Kai is spelled C-A-I. Quirk is Q-U-I-R-K. That site is kaiquirk.com. Their book of photographs, Transcendence, is now available for pre-order. Kai was featured in the September arts issue of Friends Journal. 
You can also hear an extended interview with them on a brand new podcast, The Seed. The Seed is an excellent show hosted by Dwight Dunstan. It's a project of the Pendle Hill Study Center. Learn more at pendlehill.org. You will find Kikeworks Quakerspeak video and the Quakerspeak channel on YouTube or visit quakerspeak.com. The series is produced by Rebecca Hamilton Levy. New videos come out every other Thursday. What do you do when you see a grave injustice in the world? What if your own friends or faith community are perpetuators of the injustice? What happens when you speak up and speak out? In the early 1700s, a Quaker named Benjamin Lay found out when he railed against fellow Quakers who supported and benefited directly from slavery. Benjamin and his wife, Sarah, witnessed firsthand the atrocities against enslaved Africans who were kidnapped in Western Africa and auctioned off as forced labor in Barbados. Later, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, Lay resorted to extreme methods to convince Quakers to repent of slavery. Though he was only four feet tall, Benjamin Lay used his voice, writing, savings, and even performance art to communicate with Quakers. Marcus Redeker told the story in his 2017 book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. And now there is the graphic novel, Profit Against Slavery. It is authored by Redeker along with Paul Buell. David Lester drew the dynamic and moving images. For a Friends Journal review, Gwen Gosney Erickson wrote, Rather than limiting the story to a single illustration or angle, the artistry of this latest interpretation relays the entire story to show the many emotions and travails of an 18th century Quaker prophet. On friendsjournal.org, you can read reviews of both books. There's also an interview with David Lester, the illustrator of the graphic novel. Rob Pegler and Lucy Duncan are the co-founders of Reparation Works. Lucy has been involved with groundbreaking reparations work in Philadelphia's Green Street Friends Meeting. Later this month, Lucy and Rob will co-lead an online workshop called Exploring a Quaker Commitment to Reparative Justice. It's sponsored by Pendle Hill Quaker Center in collaboration with the Woodbrook Center in Birmingham, England. I asked Lucy and Rob to tell us about questions that help deepen their understanding of reparations. And I now share with you highlights from our conversation. I mean, I think the question what does this really mean and what does it look like and what's possible have been really, really important. The question of what's possible is very fruitful wherever you are in your reparations journey, whether reparations is new to you or you're part of the hipster reparationist avant-garde. Some people think of reparations and they just think government, you know, 40 acres and a mule. Well, on the federal level, there's HR 40 legislation to get a commission, the the truth part of the truth, reparations and reconciliation. In California, where there is a a task force looking at reparations, which is really powerful, their report is really powerful. There was a campaign to return Bruce Beach 
which was owned by African-Americans and taken by eminent domain to return Bruce Beach to the African-American family that owned it. And now they have it back and they're leasing that beach to the city. People say it's not possible, but when you actually look and say, what could be possible? Let's look at that instead. I think it's a really powerful tool. Actually, Quakers were called to offer reparations in 1969 by the Black Economic Conference and deliberated and deliberated and deliberated. Muhammad Kenyatta was the person who made that call. He went on a hunger strike and the yearly meeting ended up only paying 5000 and minuted a commitment to pay $100,000, which they never paid. Muhammad Kenyatta said, you know, you aren't, you aren't honest about your history of racism. And this is an example of it. They chose Quakers because they thought there would be an easy win. When we started to talk about reparations at Green Street meeting, it arose from a long process of deliberating around racial justice. And in the case of Green Street, there was an awareness of uh, Quaker complicity, a, a Quaker complicity with being enslavers. William Penn was an enslaver and a slaveholder, an early slaveholder in Philadelphia, and Quakers helped to create the penitentiary system. And for us, it was like, oh, there was a discovery that we had a lot of resources, a fairly large unrestricted reserve. Oh, is the use of our treasures our monetary resources, is it in line with our commitments, our faith commitments and our racial justice commitments? And it became really obvious that we needed to look at reparations as a way to make it in line with those commitments. What Green Street did first was create a legal clinic to support Black homeowners in securing their housing wealth. In the context of Green Street, Black members of the meeting are determining the use of those funds. And that will be the beginning. That's just the first year. There are a lot of things that are already going on that are inspiring and can be copied. And just that question, like we, we don't know yet what's possible. And instead of being overwhelmed, like we're, we're creating what's possible right now. At this point of the conversation, I felt both inspired and skeptical. I attend a small Quaker meeting in rural Pennsylvania Green Street meeting in urban Philadelphia has two things my little Quaker meeting does not. For one, Green Street has a lot of people of color, but my meeting, well, like many Quaker meetings in the USA, all or nearly all of the members and attenders are white. And two, Green Street already had money in reserve to draw upon. My meeting definitely does not have a financial reserve. Even without paid staff, we struggle each year just to pay the bills in order to keep the meeting running. What is a relatively poor, predominantly white, small meeting able to do? So in in imagining a hypothetical small Quaker meeting that's white and individually and collectively does not have material resources, and they have no idea what to do. One thing that comes to mind is the idea of anti-racism beginner's mind. They're they're starting at a great place. They're not showing up with money and resources and feeling that they're being driven by easy saviorhood. Using principles of like getting connected to your local indigenous folks or your local black folks and really thinking about what's needed and what how you can come along with that work to me there's a there's an embodiment of accompaniment that is elemental to reparations that you're working alongside people 
What are the needs? What are the things in my sphere that I have influence over or that I can support in, in moving money? A middle class, I think about um, using my wealth in reparative ways, but I think that's limited. So what am I connected to? Like Green Street, like the Mayor's Commission, so that I can influence other other work of, of repair and reparations. And also just what does it mean day by day to live a reparative life? When people say they want to work for racial justice, I'm like, what does that mean? And for me, reparations is a really powerful answer to what does it mean to work for racial justice. just heard an edited excerpt from a 45-minute conversation I had with Rob Pegler and Lucy Duncan. Together, they founded Reparation Works. You will learn more about reparations and what is possible by visiting their website, reparation.works. That's reparation.works. In the January 2023 issue of Friends Journal, you can read Lucy's article, Reparations and Transgenerational Healing. Gabrielle James writes about Green Street's reparation work in her article, The Road We Walked. You can read these articles online at friendsjournal.org. To hear the complete conversation I had with Rob and Lucy, visit quakerstoday.org. There you will find a link in our show notes. In preparing this episode, I learned a new word, manumission. In an interview for Friends Journal, David Satin Lopez explained the word. Quote, a manumission is a legal document that promises to free someone who is enslaved. In this context, we're talking about American chattel slavery. These records were turned over to the yearly meetings and the quarterly meetings, which is why we have them. End quote. The Quaker and Special Collections Archive at Haverford College contains documents for 339 enslaved Africans who were freed between 1765 and 1790 by slaveholding families in Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. Avis Wanda McClinton is the founder of the 339 Manumissions and Beyond Project. Her leading is to discover what happened to these 339 children of God and to find their descendants. Last year, Avis Wanda McClinton had a conversation about manumissions with Martin Kelly, the senior editor of Friends Journal. It was a lot of, lot of effort, Martin, to, to not talk about Quaker heritage or slaveholding. It wasn't by accident that the Quaker mystique is of abolitionists. Like they like jumped over the part of enslavement, (laughs) you know, the real nitty gritty. Yeah. And, and now we hear. One in that paper, it's like fill in the blank. It's like, here's someone's life. And we have a fill in the blank manumission sheet. And all we see is Jack. There's someone named Jack. And that's, that's all we know. And we know nothing about who we, who we loved, who his kids were, who his parents were where he came from in Africa. We know nothing, nothing of that. And we don't know what happened to him from just all we have is just this little slip of paper. It's amazing. 
there are, for real, honest to God, records in these Quaker archives, but nobody ever thought to look. Yeah. If you think that these people that see the God in everybody, they never thought to look and see where they slavers. Yeah. And all this time that my little thing that I'm trying to do, honoring those known only to God, to find the enslaved people that were held bondage by the, the Quakers, they're there. How dare you keep them in the dark? Because they amass so much wealth for the enslavers, for the America, and for the world. They didn't get none of that credit. And here I am now trying to do my little things when I find each place to to have a memorial to give them just a little bit of dignity. I read all these names and read all these papers and, and had to sit with myself with this information, with this real information. I broke down. I cried like a baby. I cried like, like when my mother died in the hospital. Hundred and thirty-nine people of the enslaved that Quakers got extremely wealthy for. This is a pitlin. That was an excerpt from the YouTube video Avis Wanda McClinton, Quaker Slavery and Manumissions. You can view the entire conversation at the Friends Journal YouTube page. In the January 2023 issue of Friends Journal, you will find Avis Wanda's article, Confronting the Legacy of Quaker Slavery. It's also available online. Visit quakerstoday.org to find all these links and more in our show notes. Coming up, an eyewitness account of a revival in Kentucky. A young person grapples with his faith, and the writings of an early 20th century mystic finds new life. Stay tuned. I'll break in for just a moment to remind you that I'm grateful to Peterson Toscano, who is guest hosting today's Spirit in Action, as I am on a month-long vacation of travel, camping, including a week at the Friends General Conference gathering in Oregon. Our website is northernspiritradio.org with all kinds of links to and about all our guests from today and all of the 18 years of Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul. Do us a favor and post a comment on this program. You can donate on our site. Again, that's northernspiritradio.org. And remember to support all the wonderful community radio stations, some 35 to 45 of them nationwide, who carry our programs. And if your local station doesn't carry us yet, please talk to them and get them straightened out. Enough of me. Back to the amazingly talented person filling in for me today. Hi, I'm Peterson Toscano, your guest host today on Spirit in Action. Thank you for listening. Now, my own faith journey has been complicated. (laughs) At age 17, I left the Catholic Church and became a born-again, evangelical, conservative Christian. It was the 80s, and it was the height of the HIV-AIDS crisis, and I 
was gay. Well, I didn't accept that I was gay. I thought I was a Christian struggling with homosexuality. So I figured, let me just destroy that gay part of me and instead replace it with a religious, spiritual Jesus part of me. What happened next was a 17-year turmoil (laughs) where I sought out every possible remedy to become cured of being gay. I never once imagined that God was okay with me being gay. I just assumed that I had to change because that's what every leader in my life told me I needed to do, and not just religious leaders. I mean, at that time, political leaders and many of my peers, they all said that it was wrong to be gay. So I went down this dangerous path to try to rid myself of desires. And it wasn't just desires, though, I learned. To destroy that part of me meant to destroy every part of me, my creativity, my relationships. I couldn't even pursue friendships for fear that I would fall in love. In the end, I was broken. My faith was in tatters. My mental health was shattered, and I needed to find a new way. I attempted going to a variety of churches that welcomed gays and lesbians, but I have to say, even just walking into a church, a friendly one with rainbow flags, it brought up for me trauma. (laughs) We sang the same songs and the architecture looked the same, and I just kept finding myself stuck. Eventually, I walked into a Quaker meeting house and was a bit surprised. I didn't know much about Quakers. A friend of mine was a Quaker, so I went along. She didn't explain anything to me, (laughs) and we sat in silence for a full hour. I kept wondering, um, when are they going to (laughs) start? But it was a magical hour for me, and I walked away feeling like maybe this is a new home for me. I still feel like a refugee in the Quaker meetings I attend. I love it, but it doesn't feel like the home I once knew, but... There's no really going back to that home, because the only way I could go back there is if I deny my humanity. In the end, I realized that I was asking God to make me straight, assuming that's what God wanted. I never once imagined that God's answer was no. (laughs) That's not what I want for you. These days, I get to hear a lot of people share their personal journeys of self-discovery. For the second half of today's show, you will hear from three different young people. They share their encounters with faith and faith communities. One of them lost his faith after being raised in an evangelical church. He is now in this middle space, trying to find a way forward. He's not yet ready to give up on his faith in Jesus but he's finding it hard to talk about his experience with folks from his former church. Carla J., a Latina Christian in Indiana, traveled to Asbury College to experience the Asbury Revival. It happened earlier this year and was all over the news. She arrived skeptical, assuming it might just be a case of some people looking for attention. What she saw there, though, raised a lot of questions for her. In particular, She reflects on what revival means for her. Anthony Kirk is a Christian pastor and a transgender man. He tells us about the Bible verse that speaks directly to him about his own life and identity. 
Plus, you will hear a modern take on an early 20th century Quaker mystic. These stories are brought to you by Friends Journal and their podcast, Quakers Today. Hayden Hobby is a youth worker and worship leader in Richmond, Virginia. He is also currently working toward a master's in spiritual and social transformation. He studies in a program taught jointly by Bethany Theological Seminary and Earlham School of Religion. Hayden wrote the essay, Surviving Religious Trauma, How I Left an Abuse of God. I asked him to share some of his story and to read excerpts from the piece. I'm, yeah, a lifelong follower of Jesus, among a lot of other things. Just had a really, a really big impact on my life. Had good and bad impacts on my life along the way, but it's definitely been a really big part of my identity. I still would say that I identify as a Christian, but I like saying that I'm a follower of Jesus because it puts a little bit of distance between what I think of as the religion and then what I think of as the lifestyle the action and the practices and the the lived out expression of what we think of as Christianity. I was raised in a hyper-conservative evangelical Christian tradition that believes sin deserves severe and eternal punishment, and that Jesus bore that punishment, wrath and abandonment of God that my sins deserved. I was taught that no matter how good I thought myself to be, I deserved hell just for existing, and had it not been for Jesus' death, that's exactly what I would get. The resulting religious trauma that I sustained from this backward theology as a child and young adult wasn't physical, but it was emotional and psychological. And like most forms of trauma, it was still the result of violence. As a result, I spent a lot of formative years trying to somehow hold and understand the paradox that God loved me and wanted to spend eternity in heaven with me, but would just as quickly damn me to eternal hellfire for not believing in Jesus. That's a big contradiction to attempt to hold as a 13-year-old, and eventually my faith broke like a wishbone. The wishbone really felt like a fitting metaphor for a few reasons. One, because I think we, so many of us have experienced that crack that comes when a wishbone is split. And in so many ways, I kind of felt that within my own self at some point, like my faith kind of just snapped. But then there's also this kind of sense of luck or good fortune around wishbones as well. This kind of like sense of things will go well one way or not well the other way. And and in many ways, I feel like I got lucky or might say blessed or fortunate in the way that my faith broke and that I think that it eventually made my faith strong. Whereas I saw so many people who's had similar splits and cracks in their faith not end up as fortunate as I did. Yeah, there was a lot of definitely a lot of fear and shame associated with where I was in my kind of faith trajectory at that point, the fear of breaking down something that had been such a secure source of, yeah, a source of security for me for such a long time. And the shame of, it's it's, it's really hard to put your finger on exactly what it is that causes all of the shame in that process, but there there is a lot going on there. <laughs> I think a huge part for me, again, kind of in overcoming those things was just in a helpful way, getting away from some of the communities and people that would not have allowed me to be in that space. And it's so easy to just want to jump from one thing right into something else just because you really know that you need to get out of whatever it is, but you 
hate the idea of being nowhere. And I think that there's a an innate truth in our desire to be somewhere, to be with a group and to be with other people who will look out for us. I think I think that's something that can work in our benefit generally. But I think there are times when it is most healthy to for a time be okay with being nowhere while you figure out where it is that you need to be. It's so important to be mindful of of why something was written and who it was written to and the culture and the context around how scripture was written, but it's also so beautiful that we can draw so many things out of these stories and these parables that can have so much meaning for us in so many different ways. Who we perceive God to be drastically impacts the way that we live our lives. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, a man goes on a journey and leaves his servants with shares of his property, one with five talents, the second with two, and the last with one. The first two go and invest their talents, making more for their master when he returns. But the other servant, it says, went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. When confronted, the servant says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. So unlike the others, this servant receives very harsh treatment from his master, who takes away his talent and gives it to the one who now has ten. Jesus concludes this parable by saying, To anyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. One of the main conclusions to be drawn from this parable is the importance of capitalizing on the gifts God gives you. However, I think another equally important conclusion may be drawn about how our perceptions of God impact our actions and God's perceived reactions. The quote-unquote wicked servant in this parable chooses not to invest his master's money out of fear because he knew him to be a hard man. When we think of God as hard or strict, we will always bury the gifts that God gives us, afraid of the anger that losing them might prompt. However, like the master in the parable, the God, who prompts fear, will not be happy with our response, and any hardship we endure will inevitably be seen as a punishment for our lack of faith. If, however, we're able to see ourselves as those who have received the most, we may begin to understand the fearless servant who invests the gift of faith, knowing that regardless of the outcome, it's not punishment that awaits, but a joyful welcome of, well done, my good and faithful servant. I've found a lot of hope in the past couple of years in seeing how much I've been able to progress from this kind of dark place of questioning and not really knowing what to make of my faith or how it would impact my life into having a really messy but beautiful faith that's still growing and still being put back together. I don't think that's something that's really ever going to end. I think my whole life is going to be this process of fitting pieces together and growing and figuring out what it means to be a spiritual person in a physical and spiritual world. That was Hayden Hobby sharing his essay, Surviving Religious Trauma, How I Left an Abusive God. It appears in the February 2023 issue of Friends Journal. You can also read it at friendsjournal.org. 
Carla J. serves as the Global Ministries Coordinator for Friends United Meeting, or FUM. Her husband, Michael J., is the pastor of Raysville Friends Church. Carla has been on the pastoral team at Iglesia Amigos de Indianapolis, where her father, Carlos Moran, is pastor. Like many people, it was online that she first learned about the Asbury Revival. I just thought, oh, you know, these are people that probably want attention or just want to say that, you know, the spirit is being poor over them. On February 8th, 2023, after an on-campus chapel service, a group of Asbury students decided to stay in the chapel to pray and sing. For the next two weeks, students, community members, and visitors from around the USA attended impromptu worship services. During that time, classes were suspended. Online and in the media, people called it an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, or the Asbury Revival. According to Inside Higher Ed, quote, Asbury is part of the Wesleyan theological tradition, which emphasizes transformational encounters with the Holy Spirit, end quote. This year, during the two weeks of nearly constant prayer and worship, over 50,000 visitors joined the students. Carla J. was not interested in traveling the three hours to the Asbury campus, but her sister, who Carla doesn't get to see often, proposed they meet up and visit together. Carla shared with me what she saw and heard, and she reflects on what revival means to her. It wasn't hard to find. The campus is not that big. We found it, and we saw that it would be a while before we got in. There was maybe 2,000 people outside at the time we went there. Being already suspicious of what was happening, I was looking for, like, are there any other Latinos? (laughs) Are there other Black people here? You know, people that are different from regular white people. Is this just like a white people movement? There was some other Latinos, maybe not as many as I, I would have liked there to be, but there were some other Latinos in the crowd. The majority of the crowd was white. We waited about 45 minutes to get in. And in the meantime, an usher came and he asked us, what did we need? And and what were we doing there? Like, did we come for anything in particular? And we said, we just came to feel the presence and to be here. He said, are there any needs that you have that you would like me to pray for you? And we said, just that we feel the presence. He prayed for us that we may feel the presence and that we may be blessed. It was just very quiet. Even though there was music being played in the background, the worship leaders weren't not really leading people into worship. It was as if there, it, there there was background music. People were praying. Some people were singing to the music that was that was being played. Some people, if they felt like they went up and gave testimony, people were were allowed to go in and out as as they felt led. It almost felt like in a program meeting for worship with background music. It wasn't organized. It was spontaneous. 
We were there for about an hour and a half, and I felt like we had only been there for 15 minutes. I didn't feel bored or anxious, and I usually feel that in a lot of like church meetings, that I'm bored, I'm anxious, that I want to leave. I've, I've already sang these hymns before. I probably already heard that sermon before, whether the person that I'm listening to is new, but I probably already heard the sermon in some way or another. I did not feel that at Asbury. I just felt like there was peace there and that whatever was happening, a genuine experience for most of the people there. Growing up evangelical and holiness, I did see adults making a plea for a revival to happen, but I never seen them asking for repentance or turning around. The church has been asking for a revival to happen, but at the same time, I don't see many leaders of the church recognizing the sins that the church has been a part of. And some of that sin has, has to do with issues of justice. What I saw in, in Asbury is that this movement, or it might be too soon to call it revival, but this outpouring happened in very young people. I mean, these are college kids. They're not older than, I don't know, 23. They don't have any influence. They don't have any positions of power. The spontaneous worship happened among them. It didn't happen in an older generation that is not recognizing the sins. And, and you know, like the younger generation is being more honest about the injustices that are happening in this country that might have something to do with, you know, recognizing that not everyone in this country has the same justice. And being able to recognize that and being able to say we are going to make a difference, I think that in itself is the, the movement of, of the Holy Spirit. God is not going to do an outpouring in people that are not repenting and calling for justice in this country. If they're not calling against racism, if they're not calling against misogyny, the Holy Spirit is not going to move in, in that. Our relationship with God also has to do with our relationship with others around us and how we seek justice for our brothers and sisters. My journey with religion and spirituality has been completely intertwined in my relationship with my gender identity and coming out as transgender. My name is Anthony Kirk. I use he, him pronouns. I live in Klamath Falls, Oregon, and I am currently the pastor of Klamath Falls Friends Church. There's actually a psalm that has really helped me. I reflect on it a lot. I use it for Transgender Day of Visibility events, and I share it with those who are exploring their identity, exploring their gender, their sexuality, and wondering, well, where do I fit? The scripture that I used 
comes from Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 from the New Revised Standard Version. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. That I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your books were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. And it's the beautiful reminder that God knew us since our conception as we were formed. God knew us and loved us and created us long before society put labels on us, made assumptions. And that's brought so much comfort to me and so many people in my life. That was Anthony Kirk in an excerpt from the Quaker Speak video, Made in the Image of God. A transgender pastor shares Psalm 139. You'll find the full video and other Quaker Speak videos at the Quaker Speak channel on YouTube or visit quakerspeak.com. Quaker Thomas Kelly, Life from the Center, is a free online pamphlet that includes excerpts from two of Kelly's books, Testament of Devotion and The Eternal Promise. While reading Kelly's writing, Kathleen B. Wilson started copying excerpts verbatim and arranging sentences and phrases. The format helped her savor each word and phrase. Alyssa Vanderbark, a Quaker Voluntary Service Fellow, and Jonah Sutton Morse, a member of Concord Monthly Meeting in New Hampshire, join us to read passages from the pamphlet. I have no interest in silence as a form, but I know that devotion and dedication arise in the deep communing of the heart, in dwelling with a silence in the center of our being, in periods of relaxed listening and expectancy, the silence within us seems to merge with a creative silence within the heart of God, and we hear eternity's whispers, and we become miracles of eternity, breaking into time. Live a listening life. Order your outward life so that nothing drowns out the listening. The second spring of hope is this. We simple, humble people can bear the seed of hope. No religious dictator will save the world. No giant figure of heroic size will stalk across the stage of history today as a new messiah. But in simple, humble, imperfect persons like you and me, wells up the spring of hope. We have this treasure of the seed in the earthen vessels, very earthen vessels. Yield yourselves to the growth of the seed within you in these our days of suffering. Sow yourselves into the furrows of the world's pain, and hope will grow and rise high. Be not overcome. 
by the imposing forces of evil and of might, be of good cheer, says Jesus. I have overcome the world. That was Alyssa Vanderbark and Jonas Sutton Morse reading excerpts from the free online pamphlet Quaker Thomas Kelly, Life from the Center. You can read the full version and the introduction written by Kathleen B. Wilson at the website quakerthomaskelly.org. That's quakerthomaskelly.org. And you can connect with Quakers like Jonah at the Society of Friends Discord group. I will have links for you in our show notes. Thank you for spending this time with me on Spirit in Action. I'm Peterson Toscano, and I have the honor to host and produce the Quakers Today podcast. It's a project of Friends Journal. And as you can hear, the content is not just for Quakers. The first season of Quakers Today was sponsored by Quaker Voluntary Service. QBS is the only organization in the United States dedicated solely to the spiritual and vocational needs of young adult Quakers and seekers. Learn about the year-long fellowship program for young adults. Visit QuakerVoluntaryService.org and follow QVS on Instagram at Quaker Voluntary Service. I'm right now in the middle of producing Season 2 of Quakers Today. Visit QuakersToday.org to hear more of our shows, read transcripts, and learn about our guests. And visit FriendsJournal.org to read articles about faith, justice, and much more. That website, again, is friendsjournal.org. I wish you many blessings in your life. Feel free to drop me a line. My email address is peterson at petersontoscano.com. Now, back to Mark Helpsmeet. I'm so grateful, Peterson, for your work and that you could fill in for me today. All you listeners, remember to check out all of the programs and plays that Peterson creates. We'll have more guest-hosted programs over the next couple weeks as I travel and vacation, but in any case, we'll see you here next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.